Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, man, there's so many things uh, to talk about with you. I wanted to have you on because, one, you're a police officer. Two, you're a SWAT guy, so you're used to dealing with crisis response and management. Um, But also, you're a a former uh, special operations guy, a former Green Beret. Yep. So, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, let's line out kind of like your origin story, kind of where you're from. And then leading up to the point in which you decided to go into special operations, um, let's start off with that. Let's let's start there. Sure. Yeah. And again, thank you for having me. It, it is an honor to be on on your podcast. Um, I I didn't really have much direction up until the towers fell. To be perfectly honest, I went through school, went through college, didn't really have one specific mission in my life. Um, I did want to be a cop prior to going into the military, but it, I don't, you know, my focus wasn't really all that clear. But after the towers fell, everything kind of came into focus for me. I felt a calling from God to do exactly what I ended up doing by his grace. And I joined the military, joined the army. I actually had a naval recruiter. I was, I was working back and forth between him and the army guy. And I was going to do the SEAL program. Um, I actually, my best friend from high school, who I won't mention his name, he's still active um, with Dev Group, but he he was the first one I called and basically said, hey, I want to do what you do. And he kind of outlined it for me and he kind of warned me. He said, look, man, I know you're not a water baby, so um, you might want to go do some scuba stuff before you even think about that. And uh, I ended up trying that out. It wasn't really my bag. And I decided around this, around the time I was about to actually sign my naval paperwork, the army recruiter called me and said, Hey, they're opening up SF for off the street. Um, it's a tough learning curve, but if you can hang with it, then you'd go straight to being a green beret. And I was like, well, that sounds great. So I decided to do that instead. Um, by the grace of God, I made it through that and got to my first ODA, um, served with him. That was my, did one short little trip over, uh, and then to Korea, and then I went over to Iraq for OIF-3. When I got done with that, I came back and migrated over to uh, a, another ODA. I did a couple of trips with them, and then my ETS window came up in 07, and I had planned on making a career out of the Army, but I also planned on being single, to be perfectly honest, and I just I know how I'm wired, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to focus that well there's lots of guys who can, God bless them. I'm not one of them. Um, if I had a wife and kids at home. So when I met my wife, I decided to, uh, drop that paperwork and ETS out. Still had that kind of get the bad guys calling. So I decided to be a cop and that's pretty easy because you can go anywhere in the country and do that. So I could just go where she wanted to go. Ended up out here in Arizona. Um, and yeah, I became a cop in 07. And like you said, I, I since I came in because I work for smaller agencies, be, getting on a SWAT team is not as lengthy of a process as it is if you work for like, you know, a huge agency like LAPD or, or Phoenix or something like that. So I've been doing SWAT most of the time I've been a cop. Um, I lateraled from my first agency with the sheriff's office over to the local PD where I work now. I've since promoted to patrol sergeant. So I still have boots on the ground. I still respond to calls, but I'm kind of managing all the first responder assets on the law enforcement side when, when we go to these things. And I have a, <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of training in the law enforcement kind of angle since I 
since probably about 2011 is when I got really into that. And I've been doing it ever since. And I don't do it on the side. It's through my police department. Uh, and I have passed a lot of those things along to some of the younger officers with good backgrounds for it, just because patrol supervision kind of takes priority over all the other stuff that I had been doing up until now. But yeah, a lot of my training focuses on critical response, both for law enforcement officers and for civilians. Uh, we obviously, we do a lot of tactical response options for um, active shooter response uh, for civilians. A lot of teachers, uh, private businesses, some government agencies like DES and DCS, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really been a passion of mine to do that type of training uh, for people that haven't considered what the options are, that haven't thought about it before, and we try to sell the truth, which is foster and develop a mindset of preparedness for this stuff, so that when you react, you react. You don't just get frozen in place. And it's been really good doing that. I've had a, I got a, I've gotten a lot of satisfaction out of it seeing these people's eyes light up sometimes a little bit shell shock nature but we try to keep the the subject matter delivery as lighthearted as we can so so people don't clam up and run away screaming from the training yeah i was going to ask what are what are some of the tactics that you approach civilians with when having a conversation about active shooters because i mean it, it just the conversation itself or even talking about the data and and the facts of of the matter and, and not going down a kind of narration of your ideas or or opinions like just talking about what's happened before as an right. understanding of like what we should be prepared for how do you bridge that gap in civilians i think the biggest thing is to let them know that it's part of reality you know cuz usually when they show up to one of my classes they're already accepting of that but there are a lot of times when let's say for example when the the school district out here mandated everybody in their schools go through that training program that we put together, a lot of them were there because they were voluntold to go. And so I still want to try to reach them. And so just making them aware of the fact that, hey, look, this is reality. When you put a seatbelt on in your car, you do it because you're not planning on crashing your car, but it can happen. It happens all the time. And people are aware of that reality. They buy cars with airbags. You know, when you go out, people practice this on a regular basis. They just don't realize it. Um, it's the same thing with a world of tactics, you know, like when my wife and I go out to eat once every five years because we have four children, um, she knows where I want to sit. She, you know, we can walk in, she knows where the sight lines are at, you know, we know where the exits are. She knows I'm going to want to sit in the corner where I can see the entrance uh, or, or have a good line of sight. And these are all things that she's come to just kind of learn from experience by being around me. Um, so trying to sort of bridge the gap to where they can start to say, hey, the first step and the most important step is just accepting this is reality. You know, it's it's tempting for a lot of people to say, well, I live in this area. This is never going to happen to me. The odds are it probably won't. But we have plenty of statistical data to show that it does happen. And virtually everybody that it happens to probably formerly thought this will never happen to me. So getting them to kind of just take a breath, accept that, hey, this is part of reality. It's part of life. And according to my faith, which makes it a lot easier for me to accept some of this stuff, it's part of living in a sinful, broken world. And there's no magic fix for it on this side of eternity. And I think that's what a lot of people are like, well, what, what's the fix? What if we change gun laws this way or that way? And it's like, man, you can do 
whatever you want to try to fix the problem from a, a mechanical standpoint, it's not going to work. The problem will still exist. You know, and we have data. I've studied data from other countries too, uh, countries where it's basically like for the most part, physically impossible to own firearms. And they have mass casualty incidents. They have people that, and their mortality rates uh, are just as high as ours. China is a really good example. I don't have any of the numbers in front of me, uh, which I apologize for. I mean, it's been a while since I've looked at them, but you can change the dynamic or the, the, the tools used or all these different things. And you're still going to end up with the same problem um, because it's a problem of the heart of man, you know? So I think getting them to realize that first, Hey, there is no magic wand solution for this. This will be a problem until this world ends. So because of that, why don't we sit down and talk about it and we can go over the tactical realities of the things that you have as options. Cause in reality, they're, they're very simple options. Um, you can, you can run and try to self evacuate from wherever this thing that's happening is happening. You can fight if you come across the threat or you can lock down in place. I mean, and you're during any response to this, you're going to, cycle between all those three options if you decide to run you need to be ready to change your plan and decide to lock down if your path of egress gets cut off if you decide to hide or run you need to be ready to fight if you come across the threat and we actually go into the specifics very very basic in general we don't try to turn these people into ninjas but the basics of the biology behind fighting and and what you're trying to accomplish i was when i teach cops DT, I try to always, which I apologize for the acronyms, stands for defensive tactics. It's basically cop lingo for hand-to-hand combat. But when I train that to them, it's the same idea. Look, understand why you're doing what you're doing. It's going to make the what that you need to accomplish become so much quicker and easier because they can turn you into a perfect puncher, but if you don't have the right mindset of why and how you're using that punch for what purpose, it's not going to do you any good in a real fight. So we try to try to get them to that place first of just acceptance, accept that it's reality, accept that you, there's nothing you can do to guarantee this won't happen to you, but there are things you can do to prep your mindset and your preparation so that your odds of surviving this are much higher. Yeah, that's, I mean, a lot of people, like as you frame that in that conversation, they have to be communicated that way comprehensively or they just don't buy into it. And I, what I hate is, you know, like, like a lot of training courses who don't have an explanation for, for the why or defining the why those people are in a state of shock and fear the entire time they're uh, learning, you know, they're, they're not in a right state of mind to even take in the information because they're so anxious or so fearful of, of the circumstance. Um, I, I like the way that, that you articulated that because that's, that's super important for people to understand. Um, I'm interested in, in even the way that you, even the way that you've trained in special operations, um, and in SWAT, how do you mitigate fear in yourself? Do, Do you actually have a specific tactic to control your mind, your body, everything that's you in order for you to be successful? 
Yeah, for me personally, I do. Um, and none of this stuff will come as a surprise to you because you've got a background far more extensive than even mine. Um, but, you know, you start with the something as simple as, you know, combat breathing and what that does to link your frontal lobe, which is basically trying to shut off under that amount of stress, to link it with your body and to gain some degree of control over your thought process. Because you just said it yourself, when people don't have the right mindset, and this kind of stuff happens then. And we see it with cops. We see it with civilians. Uh, don't see it as much with soldiers, but I, I think that's, I have different thoughts on why you don't see it as often with soldiers, but with cops and with civilians, we see it in both of the, both groups of people because of the lack of being mentally prepared. So then what happens when that, that those shots are going off and they're taking rounds or, they got to respond to that extra shooter call that they always told themselves, this will never happen here. Now everything just is shutting down. They go under like this condition black where they just can't really even, they're, they're moving, their body's probably doing something, but it's not doing anything that they've ever trained into their mindset, trained into react. And I always try to, to tell people, look, you, you don't, I, I go to the range, I shoot um, as much as I can. Um, but the more, the far more important aspect of training is that what we call mental role play, where it's like, look, when everything is peaceful, and we tell this to teachers a lot, when it's, and it, we use it jokingly, when it's peaceful, right? Because you're a teacher and you're, you're in charge of a bunch of kids, it's probably never actually peaceful. But what we mean by that is when you're not going through an active shooter and you're walking copies down to whatever, you're just doing your daily thing, play the what if game. You know, what if this guy with the gun comes in through this part of my building right now? What would I do? You know, and then just kind of calmly walk yourself through that because it's not happening right now. You can actually think through it. We try to get cops to do the same thing. Like when I pull up to a traffic light in my patrol car, then I just sit there with my hands on my steering wheel and kind of turn my brain off. You know, my left hand goes to my door handle, my right hand goes down onto my seatbelt latch, and I'm just waiting there. Hey, if I start taking rounds, I know I can exit this car in less than a quarter second and start to re find the location of the threat and start engaging that threat to get it on its, on its heels, you know, because the whole point is to become offensive as soon as you can so that it gets them defensive because no one expects that, especially the active shooter. They don't expect people to just turn and fight like a caged animal. They expect everybody to sit there and be victims and plead for their lives. So getting people to kind of adopt that that mindset is how, how well does it work? I mean, I know when people adopt the mindset, it works great, but how often do people adopt it? I, I don't, I have no idea. You know, I do, there are people that come up to me after some of these classes and thank me and say, well, I feel much, much more prepared now. But yeah, I, I do that. I share my, my thoughts on this. You know, the combat breathing is one technical thing that, that, that I do, that I try to do. And I, I'll use that even when I'm in the middle of getting pissed off at one of my kids or whatever, I'll, I'll breathe so that I react in a way that's going to actually help them and not make the whole situation worse. Um, but that's breathing. Like for me, I don't know how, this is just, again, this is just me, but my faith is everything. So for me, when I go get into my patrol car or I'm going to a call where I'm risking my life, which happens on a regular basis for cops and soldiers, you know, when you're overseas and stuff, but you're, it may end up being nothing, but you're going to something that based on the information you have, yeah, I'm putting myself in very real risk for people I don't even know. And I don't know why anyone would do that if they don't believe in something bigger and more, you know, more eternal than, well, eternal compared to themselves. That's just my take on it. Um, 
it allows me to let go of that. Because I mean, if it was just, if that didn't exist for me, and it was just, this is it, I, I wouldn't be a cop. I, I would find some way to make money and enjoy everything I could while I was here. Because when it's done, it's done. You know, but again, that's, there's lots of guys that don't have that faith and do this job. I, it, it's perplexing to me, but that's, that's why I do this job. That's why I was a soldier because I know what's waiting for me on the, on the other side. Um, and so for me, it always comes back to that. I tend to tangent back to my faith with this stuff a lot. And it comes up when I do my classes. Of course, I have to caveat that by saying, hey, this is not an official stance of my police department or any police department that I know of. This is just me, you know? So when, when it comes down to it for me, I'm in that moment. I let go of what could happen to me. Well, I don't know. There's no guarantees in any fight. And I try to train that to the cops that I teach too. You, know, you get into a fight, I don't really care if you get hurt. And I, I don't care. I care that you win. Um, but there's no guarantees. Anybody, regardless of their training, has a chance to beat me in a fist fight or somebody that's more qualified and better at fighting than I am. It, and anybody who's been in combat learns very quickly that your semblance of kind of control over the situation really isn't there. And that's that whole kind of, you got to hang your pride up at the door. Having pride in what you do is, that's good, obviously. But that kind of arrogance that that a lot of people tend to have, and I'm no exception, um, it's got to get checked at the door because there's no guarantees when bullets start flying, people start swinging. Hey, you just do what you can to stack the odds in your favor as much as possible. So for me, the odds don't have to be a guarantee because I have a guarantee that's eternal. So it makes it a lot easier. I call it a cheat code on life. I get to I get to let go of all the stuff that normally would scare me to death because I, I trust that there is a God that's eternal that's already outline this entire scenario that I'm in. He created the whole freaking thing, which comes to some wrestling issues with how he could let that stuff happen. But that, that would take a whole other podcast in and of itself. So, Yeah, I, I, I like the way you framed that. And uh, you don't often hear that in, um, in any conversation, right? Faith has become this faux pas thing. Right. Um, and, and it still plays a significant role in a lot of people's lives. And I'm interested in your take on, on faith, which is correlated to the family unit and the the um i guess the sanctity of the family unit and the integrity of the family unit and how important that is to to men and women of faith and yeah. and what your perception is as a police officer on what society is evolving or pro- progressing some would say say digressing into um, because a lot of people have perceptions and we talk about statistics and how crime is increasing, but nobody has a, um, finger on the pulse like law enforcement do like law enforcement and first responders have, um, on the front lines. What, what are your perceptions of one, the family unit and kind of what you've seen over the years and have you been able to make any kind of direct correlations to what you're seeing on the streets and, is the perception that we're getting, which is that thing, things are falling apart in society, is that something that you are honed into and think that potentially might be the case? Absolutely. I think uh, I, I teach this to when my, my son and as my daughters get older, I try to teach them that the, the, first, the first thing that the enemy wants to attack is that family unit. Um, you take that apart and... You, it, 
it just because it's not impossible. There's plenty of kids that come from broken homes that turn out to be just, uh, just amazing people, you know, because nothing's beyond God. But when you take that apart, you attack that family unit and you cause that division and you you are able to defeat that that's that cell at the most basic level. That's like the, the I, I see family unit as like the front line trench, you know, and if you take that apart, you've taken that fire team. Sorry, sorry for the military analogy. You take that fire team and you've just disintegrated them. You've taken their group effectiveness no. away and now you can take one of them out at a time. And that obviously everything tactics related is, yeah, if you have to do stuff by yourself, you have to, but you don't ever want to, that shouldn't be part of your deliberate plan is to, to do some solo operation. We train in the military and in law enforcement, especially law enforcement, because it happens quite often where you end up by yourself and you got to deal with some somebody or something or whatever. You don't have time to wait even the extra 30 seconds for your backup. If I pull up to a physical DV and I'm walking up, my backup's 30 seconds away and I hear legit like stuff slamming around. I, Oh, people are, are getting hurt. I, you know, and, and I'm not super brave. It's not me. Just any cop is going to say, Oh, I'm not waiting for my backup. I got to go at least figure out what I can, you know, establish a breach, start giving some commands, figure out if I can actually intervene physically by myself or not. But when you have that second person that arrives, you have done more then double your effectiveness if you work well as a, as a as a pair. Now you add three, four, five, six people to that, and if you have linked together and have trained together and work well together, you have multiplied your your force capability by a lot more than just the sum of your parts. That's a family unit. When you have a husband and a wife and kids that you're raising, and you're raising them to understand their roles in that family unit and what they're yeah, again, for me, it comes back to our faith. Uh, it's a faith that my wife and I share, and our kids are being raised with as well. There's a but there's a yeah, absolutely, you're you're right. I mean, attacking that family unit is 100% the first goal of the enemy on that side of it. Um, and I do see a correlation in law enforcement. Um, it's not 100%. I don't think anything really is, but yeah, it's it's unfortunate that we <laughs> will deal with. A a very kind of career criminal on one half. You know, then he has he has kids. The kid and the kid and the, you know a lot of times the he won't be with the mom. They split. The kids are being raised got just by whoever at the time happens to be there. Sometimes it's other extended family members. Sometimes they just hang out with friends. A lot of times they go abscond and they just and they're running away and living off the streets. And you get kids like that. And the, the one of the struggles in on the law enforcement side of it is to try your best to not get jaded and just sort of prejudge these kids as they're and you look at them and you say, oh, okay, well, we're just going to be dealing this dealing with this one five or ten years down the road as an adult, you know, because we're dealing with them so much now as a kid. And unfortunately, that does happen more often than not. Um, and no, I can't say that a hundred percent of the time that. A kid, or even an adult now that, be, that, that ends up going down the path do of kind of a career criminal, is always going to come from a messed up upbringing. That's not the case. But just from, and I don't have stats, but just from the stuff that we respond to and the things that, that, that I see, just my own personal experience, it seems 
like there is a very linear correlation to that broken family unit and these these kids that end up just fo- you know following down the the toilet bowl so to speak the same way that their dad or mom may have before them and it's sad and we, you know, a lot of times we'll we'll see a kid that's still young, and we'll say, and but then we know their parents or their parent or whatever the situation they're in, and, and we won't say it to them, but like you know, we just talking to each other, man, that kid doesn't have a chance, and that's a sad thing to say. It's not, it's not true. It's just cops are human too, so they're they're gonna see the same things only so many times over and over again, and pretty soon it's just like, okay, I will, well, I already know this kid's story now. Um, so yeah, I, the family unit is huge and definitely one of the first things to split up and attack because taking, taking one kid out by themselves when they don't have strong siblings, strong parents, strong faith, that's tying them together that goes beyond themselves, it's a lot harder to take out a group of five or six people than it is to take out one. So yeah, I think family unit is, is, is huge. And I do see a correlation in law enforcement, but it, again, it's, it's, it's my experience. I can't, if you were to pull up stats to a degree, you can make stats, say whatever you want. So I don't put too much stock in them, but you could pull up stats and probably show plenty of kids that were, that were brought up in homes, just like the one I was brought up, just like the one I'm bringing my kids up in that, that go down those crappy paths too. But in my experience, there's a very real link to that broken family unit and what we see in just the more criminal career criminal uh, sort of lifestyle. What do you, what do you see in as far as uh, in your own departments and, and the culture you're immersed in, what are you seeing from the leadership via this political divisiveness that's taking place, which seems like it's a huge problem in major metropolitan areas like, like Phoenix would be, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, I'm lucky. I, I work in small town, you know, um, and so I really don't. Yeah, there's politics and law enforcement, even in small agencies like where I work. Uh, I have good leadership where I work. Um, I'm not just saying that because somebody might listen to this and be mad at me. I do, um, and I haven't always, but I do now, and the. I've never worked at a big agency, so you know all I can really do is is kind of hypothesize. I do see, you know, we'll we'll look across the country at all the stuff that's happening as cops, and everything from just the political kind of the you know case law that comes down and and what happened in this in this case or that or whatever, all the way to the the videos that we see. Um, popping up from different OIA officer involved shootings and stuff like that. And it, it really is like, uh, it's like a Lego bin, you know, cause you have some, some of the things that we see are regardless, you know, I, we all know that the rioting public there's, they're going to riot re- regardless. It's not going to matter how justifiable any law enforcement action is or tactically necessary, which is the term I like to use. It, it, it's the the people that are going to riot are going to riot. Period. Um, you got family members from some of the people that uh, have been shot by cops um, and have died, who are 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 a lot of times saying, "Can everybody please stop rioting? This is not going to help anything." So you, you know, you got family members of the, some of these people that are trying to ask for everybody to calm down, but then people that don't know these people that have been killed 
are, are out there rioting. So I think to a degree, there's a large degree of the population that is going to choose that because they're looking for a reason. Um, but regarding on the cop side of it, you know, I, we try, I try to just be as honest as I can with like a tactical debrief, for example, of any incident. And what's funny is that, no, no, that's the wrong word. It's not funny. What's interesting to me is that over the years of being a cop, I think, I, I think the biggest problem, you know, and again, I can only speak to my experience. Um, it, it has nothing to do with cops being racist. You know, uh, I, I haven't, I personally have not experienced that. Um, I've worked with cops of all different backgrounds, religious affiliations, ethnicity, you know, and I, I don't see that. Um, there is something I see in law enforcement and I think it depending, not, not at my agency necessarily, but just if it, from the outside perspective, not having worked at a lot of these places, but just from the outside saying, well, it seems like to me, one of the biggest problems in law enforcement nationwide is you, you're taking the warrior out of the war. And what I mean by that is you, a lot of these shootings that you'll see, you know, some of them are just these cops, <laughs> there's nothing else they could have done, you know, and they did everything tactically soundly and that's what, what had to happen. Um, but there are other ones that you, that I'll, I'll look at and, and say tactically, okay, well, man, if this cop would have just been more confident and capable with his or her hands, this scenario would have never needed to go to the point that a gun had to come out, you know, um, and shots had to, be, had, had to start getting fired. And so, but it's, it's weird, man, because you, the, that law enforcement is full of people, you know, cops, there's such a, you know, with what we did in the army and SF, and then you, you know, you made it a career, you went farther, but even for me, uh, white side SF, um, the bar is set really high from, from a, from a standpoint of character, integrity, intestinal fortitude, you know, your willingness to sacrifice every bit of yourself for the guy next to you, all that stuff is, is set pretty high. And then in law enforcement, it's very mixed and that's just reality. You're, you're going to have, I've worked alongside cops who I would stick right at the same level, if not higher than any Green Beret that I've ever worked with. I have worked alongside cops like that. And I've worked alongside cops that I'm just like, well, are you kidding me right now? Why do you have a badge? Um, and that's just the truth. It's just reality. So when you, because you can't, if you have all police officers have to go through the level of training and vetting that it takes to spit out a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL, you're not going to have any cops. You're not going to be able to patrol your streets. So I, I, I'm not, it doesn't upset me that that's the reality. I'm perfectly aware that there's no way around that. It's just the part of, it's just the imperfect part of this imperfect world. One more of them. But I think that when you have that, we try to stress so hard to the cops that we train. Look, man, you have to be confident with your hands, capable with your hands. You got to take this training seriously and it's going to come down to them. They, they'll show up and they'll go through it but what they actually take from it and develop their mindset is really going to be on them. And so then when something happens of a critical nature that a confident cop can jump in and just handle with their hands, Hey, this guy needed to get his ass kicked, but he probably didn't need to get shot. You know, that's kind of, that's that warrior mindset. And the irony is that 
you get cops that jump to appropriate levels of force right away as soon as they have the tactical need to do so there's no fight it's over in like a second and a half they 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 end it and the guy's got cuffs on maybe he goes to the hospital maybe he's got a cracked jaw at the most or a busted lip but he lives you know um but the ones that kind of hem and haw and you can it's people can can smell hesitancy they can smell fear they can see it so when you get a cop that's not as confident that's dealing with somebody who needs to get arrested and he's not backing down and that you could, they, they can see that cop, they can see their fear and it just unravels from there and the whole situation grows out of control and pretty soon that officer is left with, crap, I don't know what else to do. I got to pull my gun out and I got to start shooting. And it's not that they didn't have to, they did. It's just unfortunate that that's part of the reality. You're going to have cops show up that you know, I like to use this analogy. If you could choose between having, let's say you're frozen in place and there's a gun pointed at your head and there's another person holding that gun and you get the scenario is that you can only choose whose hand is on that gun. You have two options on one option. You have a frightened child who is terrified of you and thinks you're going to murder them. On the other option is you have a, a warrior who is calm, cool, and collected, who is not afraid of you at all. Who would you rather have holding that gun on you? Yeah, no, that's a, that's actually a no brainer, right? That's right. I, you know, I, I think it, what's interesting is that you lined out is the behavior of the first responder being judged by the criminal. And a lot of people forget that criminals who are, especially career criminals who are experienced and confrontation, they can measure that, and they're looking for that weakness, which often leads to confrontation. But good police officers read into that behavior and do things like escalate force rapidly to mitigate the risk to the public, but also to himself or herself. And that's that's something that you learn. I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of that that can be taught in the academy, but in this world of um, defunding the police as a narrative where you're taking away more resources, do you think that you learned enough in basic patrol in the academy as a, you know, like when you came out, did you feel confident that what you had learned was enough to hit the streets outside of your, you know, OJT uh, on the road? And if not, what would you include in your training protocol or your, or the training academy to, to better serve officers in need of yeah. that training? No, that's a good question. And I think the interesting part about that is in my experience through the academy, I kind of have a little bit of an unfair advantage because I came, I came into the academy as a former Green Beret and I had wartime experience. I had already, I had needed to take life over in Iraq and I've been in three shootings as a cop too. Um, and, you know, I th there, so when I came into police work, I had a level of confidence that is not realistic for, for most cops. Um, but one thing that I noticed the most about the training itself, the training I received in the academy wasn't bad. Uh, it was tactically sound. Um, are there little things you could tweak here and there? Yeah, you're all, but you know, you guys, I've seen your website, you put on tons of different training courses. And you know, as a trainer that you're going to have different trainers that have a little bit of a different way of doing practically the same, you know, tactical concept. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know? So there, when, when I was going through the Academy, 
and what I see in law enforcement training as a whole, when it comes to things like uh, firearms-related uh, scenario-based stuff, namely active shooter response, okay, there's been a lot of good stuff that's come out that is out there now. Force on force is huge. Sim rounds is huge. You're not going to get the same training by standing there and shooting at a piece of paper that's not firing back or inducing any stress on you. And everybody knows that a sim round is not going to kill you. But there is this element of butthole factor, like pucker factor, that happens when, okay, now we're going through this thing full speed for real sims force on force. People slow down. They get a little bit less you know, brave soldier-ish like they were when it wasn't Sims on Sims. And, you know, the guys that are into that stuff, we have fun doing it, but um, it, it does, it's that, it's that added element of stress. So, I mean, in the military, obviously, you know this, um, I don't remember a single combat concept that I was ever taught where they didn't take us out to FTX, where they didn't take us out and actually put us under stress. And that is something that in a lot of cases, not like I said, a lot of the firearms related stuff in law enforcement is really good. Um, they do have that stress inoculation kind of training model. But when it comes to DT, right, uh, your hand-to-hand -hand combat stuff, it's very mix and match from agency to agency. Um, and as a head DT instructor for my agency, it was always kind of a, a, a balancing act of, okay, well, I would prefer to train all of these things at full speed and guys are going to get hurt but you know what they're going to be more prepared for the street but then i have to balance that out with well if you do that this way we're going to make somebody else the head dt instructor because we don't want all our cops going on um you know workman's comp and stuff like that to recover all these little injuries so you, you got to kind of give and take and there, and there, there's there's valid points on both sides well we don't want to injure everybody in training but we also want to find enough stress to get them so that they're learning this stuff. And so the biggest problem that I see with law enforcement training, as it specifically relates to DT, uh, is not what they're being taught for the most part. Some of the stuff that's out there is ridiculous, but most of it's fine. It's how it's being taught. So you'll get like, hey, okay, we're going to practice this uh, this arm bar, or we're going to practice this thing you're going to use against this non-compliant subject, or we're going to practice striking. Okay. And then you'll pre you'll go get your buddy, practice for five minutes at like 50% speed at the most in a nice comfortable room where it's your friend. You know, he's not going to hurt you. And then you're going to come back and say, okay, did everybody do that? All right, cool. Let's move on to the next thing. Those first steps are necessary. That's that crawl walk phase. But if you don't stick the run phase in there, if you're not training something at full speed and you're telling their training partner, do not let them do this to you or fight back and try to hurt them or whatever they're not going to learn this under stress. So your brain has to learn stress-based responses under stress. If you teach somebody the classroom portion of how to fight in any given way, and then you say, okay, now you're good to go. Ominous, dominus, you're blessed, and you're going to go be awesome. They're going to go out there and somebody that's going that doesn't know anything, who is just going to take their beer bottle and smash it across this person's face and then take the broken bits and stick it in their throat, that person's going to win because they aren't concerned about making this technique that I learned in this classroom work under stress when I've never practiced it under stress before. So the, is every law enforcement agency like that where they don't train at full speed? No, there, there's plenty that do. But as, a, as an academy model, you know, 
Because like big agencies have their own academy, so they can kind of call their own shots. But small agencies like mine and most of the agencies across the country that fit in that same bill, they go to like a a regional or a state kind of academy that a lot of agencies filter through. And those academies are going to be limited to training methods that are just aren't going to include a lot of stress that's going to teach their recruits the stuff that they need to be taught in a stress-based model Um, because that's when you go into that fight or flight you go into that reactionary kind of mindset you know yeah you've thought about it but you haven't practiced it against something happening in your face right now at full speed under stress and once you do practice those things a good example would be like okay we do like a lot of different training but one of one of the simple things is like bladed defense somebody pulls a knife on you but from a close distance okay if somebody pulls a knife on me and they're far away they're going to meet a muzzle and bullets and if they get to me uh, then i'm going to turn my firearm into a bludgeoning device and i'm going to hit them with it because i want to take away their ability to use that knife to kill me um and if the bullets haven't done that by poking holes by the time they get to me the blunt force trauma from the muzzle into their face will um that's kind of one of those mindset things if i shoot at somebody who's charging me with a knife i don't expect them to stop if they do, fine, I'll stop shooting, reassess the situation. But if they keep charging, I'm going to keep giving them holes until they get to me. And at that point, I'm going to step offline and use the muzzle of that chromoly barrel to make them change their mind because you take away their ability to think by hitting them. It's like Mike Tyson's rule, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. My, I don't know if he said anything else smart, but he, that he said right on the money. It's totally true. Um so getting them to think like that to where, okay, I need to practice this in a way that's going to get this. I'm going to learn this and have that confidence in this at full speed. We had people line up against the shock blade. It was hidden. And it was just a like a contact for somebody who was shoplifting, right? Well, you ask for their ID. You're within arm's reach because you have to get their ID from them. And they pull a shock blade and start attacking the officer. Well, intuition human intuition, and this is perfectly understandable, this is what I would want to do if I didn't know better, is I'm going to backpedal, draw my gun, and start firing. The problem with that is you're probably going to eat crap because you're backpedaling. And when you're backpedaling under stress, you're going to trip on flat ground and fall over. Now this guy with a knife is going to be on top of you because he can run faster forward than you can backwards. And now you're going to stick holes in him and he's going to stick a blade in you. So you're basically, the, the odds are you're both just going to die. Well, I'm far less concerned with you killing him and far more concerned with you living. So we test this stuff at full speed to see if it's going to work. It, but it's biologically sound. All the tactical principles are there. So they said, look, when you're this close, you need to understand that any measure of force brought against you, whether it's a knife, a fist, even if they pull out a muzzle of a gun and you are within arm's reach, your immediate action needs to already be set in your head. Now that I'm inside this kill zone, this touch zone, whatever you want to call it, My immediate reaction drill to any force coming in my way is to use what's already out there. Your hands, your elbows. Your elbows are one of the hardest striking surfaces that you can use that won't critically take away your ability to fight if one of them breaks. So you charge in, take that gap away from them, meet them with force, and then you tag them with your elbows. It only takes a few sometimes just one and we'll put basically a motorcycle helmet on the role player and we switch role players out because and I'll take my turn too but you end up 
take an extra ibuprofen and having an extra shot of whiskey that night because of the headaches you get. But it works, and you can see it from the role player side and the law enforcement side. And we make the students be the bad guys because they see, oh, okay, if I do this under this stress, because no one wants to get cut with that shock blade, it hurts. Everybody's scared of it. So when that shock blade comes out and then you meet that force, that first elbow lands on that helmet and that person goes spirally. Then the second one hits and they start going backwards. Then they push them off. They fall on the ground. They draw their sim pistol. And at that point, they can reassess. They'd stay down. If you get up, I'm going to shoot you. Throw that knife away and stay on the ground. Right, and if they get up they with the knife bitch. in their hand after that, then they're going to get shot. Um, but you have a much better chance of surviving that encounter, understanding the tactical and biological principles behind how human beings function, how their brains work, and what works best to interrupt their processes of being able to attack you with some level of efficacy. So that's counterintuitive, though. No one's going to think, "Oh, this guy has a knife. I'm going to go punch him in the face." No one thinks that because. You wouldn't do that unless you had no other alternative. But when you get that close, that's your best chance at getting that exit window to get out and gain some reactionary gap and pull out a weapon, a tool, whatever, and reassess. But the method of training, full speed, shock blades in your face, it has to be done. Because when people do that, their eyes light up. When they, when they feel it work, oh, this isn't just some bullcrap that they're teaching me because they read it in some lesson plan. No, this actually works. And until they do it for themselves and get that feeling of accomplishment and get that feeling of, oh, this, this shit actually works. I, I can actually use this. That has now set an emotional file for that cop. He is now that much more confident. He is now out there going, look, I can be calm and talk to this guy. I don't have to get all assed up and get all and yell at him and all this other stuff that tends to escalate force encounters. I can be calm and chill and just talk to him. And try to maybe even empathize with him a little bit. Hey, man, that sucks. That, that sounds like you're having a crappy day. I'm sorry. Because the entire time, you're confident knowing full well, if this guy decides to press the issue and use force on me, I'm okay. I know what to do. Those are the cops that you never hear about on the media. Because the fight wasn't a fight. It was over in less than a second. Maybe three seconds at the most. You know, and so that's that, but that method of training. What they're being taught, I don't think it's altogether any, it's bad. It's just how a lot of them are taught. You, you take that stress-based response training out, you're not going to get a good response under stress. It's that simple. Yeah, that's super important, man. That As you outlined that, um, a lot of departments aren't doing that uh, in many instances in basic patrol. And the fact that you guys are implementing that in some way, even if it's in DT and specific genres of, of their job, that's so important. Um, I got a quick, quick couple rounds of questions I want to ask you because, you know, preparedness is something that's important in your life not only in your career, but also something you pay attention to because if you're a law enforcement officer and you police your own community, you have to be prepared. Um, and I, I also think it's one of the most difficult things that people don't understand when you're policing the worst criminals in your own community and you live in that same community it's super dangerous for you, not only in uniform and on in the line of duty, but also um, when you when you're out of uniform with your when you're with your family, and and that would make me uh, nervous to just be around with my own family, knowing that there's potential guys that I might have rolled up and that might be out to get me. Um, when you're in civilian clothes and you're just doing your everyday life, just just living outside the uniform, what what is your EDC pistol setup and why? 
So if it depends, you know, because my wife has one in her purse. Uh, she and for her purse, I you know what I got for her purse gun is a it's just a little thirty eight um, snub nose hammerless revolver. It's a Smith and Wesson four four two. And I I told her the reason that's better for her purse is because you could fire all five of those rounds from inside your purse without ever having to remove the pistol, the, the revolver because of the way it works. It doesn't have an action and an ejection port. It's not going to get jammed up with all the crap in your purse. So, for example, if somebody was trying to grab one of the kids and take them and you felt the need for exercising that lethal force option, you could just reach your hand into your purse, unholster that, revolver and stuff it in their chest and pull the kid back and fire a couple of rounds. You can't do that with a pistol because of all the crap that's in the purse. That's, that's going to, it's, you're going to get one shot. Then you're going to have to clear a, a stovepipe or something. Um, so for something like that, where you want the option to shoot from inside a pocket or a bag or something, revolvers work great. Um, for me personally, uh, I typically have a little PF nine that's my concealed carry gun and I'll have that just on my, on my back, uh, underneath a jacket, or that gun's real nice because it's re it's it's real thin profiled, so it doesn't print. If I've even if I'm wearing a, a athletic fit shirt, um, you're only gonna know if I have it if I'm like bending over all the way or something. And I have ways of doing that to kind of help conceal it. Um, and if it's in the winter months, you know, I know you, where you live, it gets colder than it does here, but it gets cold enough here to where people wear jackets and stuff. So when I am out and about, and I, it's cold enough to have my jacket on the whole time, like a leather jacket. Um, typically, I'll go to my full-size patrol pistol um, and carry that because it it's completely concealed. Um, it holds a lot more rounds. It's a much better. It's, you know, it's got an RDS. It's just a it's just a better overall weapon system than that little bitty concealed PF9 that I have. What about your um, What about your med setup? What, what are you running for? Or do you run anything for med outside of the tourniquet that you carry on your duty patrol belt or in tactical kit? Do you do we, anything for uh, med for civilian? Yeah, the the biggest thing for meds is your tourniquet and your um, your three way seals, your chest seals, um, and then obviously the the three biggest things are the the tourniquet, the the chest seals, and the um, the uh, some form of hemostatic bandage like quick clot or something. Um, I don't carry the tourniquet, you know, the med stuff that I just listed, I'll carry that on patrol. I don't carry that on my person when I'm just out. Um, I have kit bags like that in my, the different vehicles that we have, but I, yeah, I don't have any of those things on my person when I'm just, you know, out and being a civilian. Yeah. Cause you have to carry your load out because you're a SWAT officer and you, and you're, you're on standby. You potentially yeah. can get caught out at any time and have to be able to go to your go bag and your kit bag and your vehicle and yeah. then move to the scene, correct? Yep. So I'll, I keep all my SWAT gear with me. Some guys do it different. Uh, it kind of depends. Uh, some guys will keep all their gear at the office because someone's going to have to go to the office to get a couple different things. There's usually a group of people that have to go pick up the equipment van. Um, we have an armored vehicle that we will take out if the call kind of necessitates it, but it's, you know, at a smaller agency, budget tends to have a lot more control over your operational um, restrictions than it, it does at larger agencies. So, um, yeah, we, we, we keep our kit on us uh, for the most part. But like I said, some guys will keep it at the office and run and get that with the equipment van and any other gear that we might need on scene. Uh, last question. What's your favorite book and why? 
Man, that's a tough one. He's going to say the Bible. I, uh, the first, I'm just, this isn't necessarily my favorite book, but since it is the first one that came to mind, I'm going to go ahead and give it props for that. And I'm going to say it's uh, Fearless. And I don't know if you've read that one. Um, is that the one with about, the, uh, the, the, the swimmer, about, the cold plunge guy? It's about Adam Brown. He oh, was, that's right. Yeah, Adam Brown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that one was the first one that came to my mind. I have... Uh, I, I have a lot of books that I like, um, but that's, I, I'm, I'm really into like apologetic stuff. So I like, my faith isn't just my faith because my parents said, this is the reality. So believe it. That's not like, I, I went out and studied other religions. I studied I, what uh, evolution, you know, I studied all these different things and apologetically from a standpoint of logic, despite what people that are, uh, don't know these things and haven't studied these things. Um, Christianity and, and following Christ and believing kind of what I believe, it, it checks a lot of logic boxes when you look at, how, you know, the history that supports it outside of the Bible and all these different things. So the books like Case for Faith and Case for Christ, I like those a lot. Um, I like I like books on philosophy. I've, like Sun Tzu's Art of War, obviously I've read that more than once. Um, Miyamoto Musashi was one of the greatest uh, swordsman to ever live in feudal Japan. He wrote, um, I've read his, um, I always forget what's it called when somebody else writes your biography, that one. Oh, autobiography. Yeah. 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 The auto, I always get auto and biography mixed up, but I've read his autobiography and I've read his actual, uh, book on martial, martial arts book of five rings. I've read that like five or six times. So I like, I like books like that. Um, but yeah, that, that book about uh, fearless with Adam Brown was, was definitely one of, one of my favorites. Yeah, super cool book, man. I actually know guys who serve with him and and know him, and yeah. that, that's a amazing um, book as well. Um, yeah, man, Joe, thank you so much, man. Uh, there's there's a, so much information uh, via your experiences. Not a lot of people can articulate uh, those type of experiences the way you did, and giving some insight, whether it's you know specific technical things that you recommended under stress and an active shooting circumstance or um, kind of your thoughts and ideas in tactical training and then responding under stress. Those are big helps, man, because that law enforcement perspective, especially from accomplished officers like yourself that understand because you've operated, uh, you know, in warfare and seen the worst kind of um, uh, operating in stress and, and what those conditions look like. And then transitioning that career into a um, a civil peace officer capacity, and then still doing this the SWAT piece, you just don't find that often. And the fact that you were able to articulate your experiences like that through all the things that you've done is super impactful. I and mean, I know it's going to help our listeners. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. It means a lot coming from you. Yeah, man, I'd love to have you on again, man, and talk specifics about just yeah. specific tactics that could help people. Um, I'm going to post this on uh, my my podcast, but also uh, I'm probably going to audio share it on American Contingency, just for which is a free uh, place for people to get information and content because it's going to help people in so many ways. Um, Do you flattered? I appreciate it. Do you have any platforms? I know most police officers don't, but do you have any uh, platforms where people can go and see kind of 
the things that you're teaching and talking about? Is there anything like that or is that not a, no, no, I don't. And I I actually have been approached by a lot of people in some of the civilian trainings that I've done because I've done it. I've done them for years now at different entities and stuff on the civilian side. And they'll ask me, Hey, do you you do any, um, do you run your own like self-defense classes or do you do any of this stuff on the side? And it's always no. And I, 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 I asked my, my command staff and they said, no, because of these different things, as long as you, you know, are working here, you can't do that. And, and they're not, they weren't being mean that it's, it, when they explained it all the different ways that I won't bore you with it, it, yeah, it's, I, I can't do that stuff on a different platform apart from what I do now. Um, I can do things on the side, uh, like, like your platform, for example, because it's not my platform. Yeah. So I can, I can share my thoughts, my experience and the tactical kind of stuff that we teach or that that I've taught for years. I can do that on your platform. Yeah. Um, See, that's, that's what it would be perfect. Cause you know, I I think, you know, if, even if we give people the understanding and the conversation of kind of what you're offering and your perspectives, we're going to like get a lot of engagement of people asking the right questions. And, and that would be super, um, interesting and also uh, an honor for us to be able to host that platform because uh, I mean people often want to know like what's going on in officers minds based on you know perceiving information in videos and and news and policy and tactics on the ground and to have that ability to do that that you know we have you know one of our buddies Mason um, who provides some of that but that would be really cool to have your perspective as well oh yeah I, I, I would love to be on your show again and I'm definitely open for any and all of that. Yep. Cool, man. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you for your service to the country, but also your service to your community. You guys never right. get enough credit. You, all the things that are going on with law enforcement, we hope that those toxic conversations and narrations go away. Um, but we'll always support you guys and we appreciate what you do personally and the sacrifices you and your family make. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you as well. Thank you again.